You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I'm especially excited. I'm always excited to preach, but I'm especially excited because I feel like the Spirit has been speaking to us about this series for a little while now. And uh, when, when I came back uh, after Nate was born earlier in the year, John and I sat down, and it feels like God has independently been leading us to the same place, this same revelation about what life with Jesus looks like and what it could look like for our church. And so I feel like there's a fork in the road at the moment for our church, where there's two ways of walking, two roads to go down, and we actually need to stop and listen to what God is saying to us, lest we miss something important. And so this morning is the start of a conversation around what the way of Jesus looks around, what it looks like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And so I'm excited to get into that with you this morning. Here's a warning. Uh, You'll need your Bible. We're going to be racing around all kinds of parts of the New Testament this morning. And so I encourage you to pick up your Bibles and have them with you because you'll need them. Before we jump in, let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, we just pray this morning that as we read your word, that we would also be listening to you this morning. God, let us not have deaf hearts or ears or eyes to see what you are up to in this place, but rather lead us to come here this morning with a, a soft heart towards you, ears that want to listen to what you have to say and eyes to see where we need to go. Father, ultimately pray that you convict us and lead us to a place of intimacy with Jesus, a place of closeness with Him. We know you can do it, and so we ask you, have your way with us this morning, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, and everyone said in one big loud voice, Amen. Amen. That was a medium-sized voice. All right, so there's this series called The Way of Jesus, and so surprisingly, we need to start with Jesus, right? I know that'll come as a shock to many of you. And we have lots of names for Jesus. You'll have heard Jesus being talked about with all kinds of language. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings, the Lamb who was slain. But guesses are, if you lived in the time of Jesus and you encountered Jesus, the word that you'd actually use when describing Jesus is rabbi, or teacher, that Jesus was a rabbi. That is, a rabbi was someone most likely in uh, first century Israel, or first, the, the, the time and place that he was, who would go around sharing and teaching about what life was all about, predominantly from something called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, right? Most of us stop at Leviticus, right? That's where we give up. But Jesus would have taught from it. And so he was this young, inspirational young rabbi going around Israel teaching about what life was all about. And it's interesting, in 90 different interactions that Jesus has in the New Testament, in the Gospels, 60 of them, Jesus is described as a rabbi. And I think this has enormous implications what it looks like to follow in his footsteps. What does it mean that Jesus is described as a rabbi? What what would it look like for us to have Jesus as our rabbi? 
And so let's take a look at a couple of different stories that I think illuminate and reveal something about the nature of the way of Jesus. This is the first one from Mark 1. Mark 1, 16 to 20. As Jesus was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Sounds like a bum rap for Zebedee, but that's what happens. Okay, Mark 2, a little bit further down the page. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he taught them. Then moving on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. Then a couple of pages later in Mark 3, Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted and came to him. He also appointed 12. He named them apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12. To Simon he gave the name Peter and to James the son of Zebedee. And to his brother John he gave the name... I'm going to guess this, Boanerges, that is Sons of Thunder. Andrew, Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. It was an invitation to come and be with Jesus. And then further down the page, a couple of chapters later, Jesus says this, Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower... He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? I wonder if you picked up a little bit of a pattern going on in these stories. Jesus enters the picture and he sends out an invitation. What's the invitation for? To follow him, right? Jesus has these interactions with people. He comes into contact with people. And it's interesting that the first thing he does isn't to get them to believe a bunch of different things or to ascribe to a set of beliefs, but he says, come and follow me. Come and be with me. In another way, another translation would be, come and be my disciples, Disciple is one of those words that we use a lot, and yet because we've used it so much, I think it started to lose a little bit of its meaning. It's sort of like the word legend or champion, right? A legend or a champion used to be someone who fought dragons and rescued damsels in distress, and now a champion is someone who brings you hash browns for breakfast. You legend! That's kind of what disciple is for us. But we actually need to rediscover that. An important question for us to consider is, why does this church exist? We say this just about every single week. This church exists, why? Make all of life all about Jesus. Every sphere of authority in our lives under Jesus. Making all of life all about Jesus. It's a discipleship phrase. This is what we're we're trying to encapsulate, that 
the reason this church exists is to follow Jesus, to be with him and to be his disciples. The word disciple comes sort of from two different words. One is talmudim, which is in Hebrew, which is a, a word that would have been used in Jesus' day, or mathetes, which is a Greek word. Talmudim sort of has the connotation of follower or apprentice, and mathetes has the connotation of student. But it's not like a follower, like, Jesus, I follow you on Instagram, and I've liked every single one of your photos. And it's not like a student, like I'm a student, as in like, I'm a student of your Jesus, and occasionally I turn up to your lectures, and most of the time I hand in my assignments on time. Not that kind of student or follower. I think the best word we have to describe what is happening when Jesus invites people to be his disciples is the word apprentice. Jesus is inviting people into a daily apprenticeship with him, to learn with him, to be with him, and to do what he does. Jesus wasn't the only person in that first century context who had disciples. Rabbi Halal, who was a, a famous rabbi at the time, had 70 disciples. Right? And there's, there's numerous reports of rabbis with many, many more disciples than that. Jesus didn't even come up with the term. Right? Discipleship was around from early century Greece. Like, so early on with Greece, so Plato was the disciple of Socrates, or, or the other way around. Right? They, they discipled each other. And so this would have been a very normal part of everyday culture in the first century. But here's the thing, and where I think the fork in the road is for us, that what Jesus is inviting us into when he says, be my disciple, be with me, be like me, and do what I do, is that it is not easy. What Jesus is inviting us into is something difficult and requires sacrifice. So we have this this passage from Luke chapter 14. Great great crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned to them, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, the man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the ones who come against him with 20,000? If not, whilst the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. The way of Jesus is costly. I want to to just point out two things. There's a literary device going on in the Gospels again and again and again. They're trying to accentuate the difference between the crowd and what a disciple is. And so often you'll you'll have this juxtaposition, this, this comparison between the crowd and a disciple. The crowd is around Jesus, and yet that's not what makes a disciple, right? And the whole point of the device, the whole reason that the author is using this is to make you go, which one am I? Am I part of the crowd or am I one of the disciples? I have to make a decision about that. The second thing 
is that what Jesus says here is almost the opposite of what modern Christianity tries to do. Because what we often do is try and just scale down what Jesus is saying. We, we try and make it easier for everyone and we just smooth off those rough edges. Because, like, let's be honest, if Jesus had a PR team, they would be having a freak out right now. Jesus has a great crowd, he invites them to become his disciples, and then he just says this crazy stuff, right? He says, if you don't hate your mother or brother or father or sister, even your life, you cannot follow me. If you, if you won't lay down your life, if you won't pick up your cross, you can't be my disciple, right? If you, like the last line, if you do not say goodbye to all his possessions, all your possessions, you cannot be a disciple. If you do not count the cost, you can't be my disciple. What Jesus invites us into is costly. We often don't talk about counting the cost, and I wonder if for many of us our faith looked like the man who started building a house and got halfway and never quite finished, whether the innermost parts of our hearts are just halfway houses. We haven't counted the cost of what it actually looks like to follow Jesus. So we haven't finished. So I've been rolling all of this around in my head for what feels like the last 12 months. What the way of Jesus is, what it looks like to follow Jesus. What, is, what does discipleship look like in the way of Jesus? And it's, it's, been, it's been really difficult. It's been really challenging to my own walk and my own faith. And, and that's what I'm, I'm speaking out of this morning because I, I think there's something missing here. And I wonder what we would say about ourselves, whether we would say we're in an apprenticeship with Jesus, whether we would say, yep, I've counted the cost of following Jesus. I'm not only all in, but I'm, I'm walking in the way of Jesus. Because something that I'm grappling with, and I think something that we're all grappling with, is that we might not actually be in an apprenticeship with Jesus but rather we're in an apprenticeship with culture and lots of things outside of Jesus that are actually discipling us and apprenticing us away from Jesus. John Tyson is a New York City church planner. He was born in South Australia. Um, and he, he has this incredibly challenging word for us. He, he, um, he just did this reflection on his church and where it was at and what, what discipleship looked like for them. And he came to the conclusion that culture around them, New York City, was the primary discipling force in their lives. That culture was doing an incredible job of discipling the people of Jesus, the people who claim the name Christian, away from Jesus and instead making them in its image. And he came up with these five different areas. He said, we're being discipled from faith into doubt. We have no solid ground anymore. Cynicism is a badge of honor and a childlike faith is looked down upon. We can't move forward in an apprenticeship with Jesus because we can't actually trust the ground we stand on anymore. We're being discipled from love to insecurity. There is a perpetual anxiety that follows us around all of the time. Often we're so insecure that we end up faking it hoping that one day we'll make it. But what actually happens is that people never love us for the real us, so it just perpetuates the problem. We're being discipled from community to individualism. 
Our relationships are almost entirely disposable, if need be. I've, I've felt that, that there are people in this church, past, present and future, who if a disagreement came up, if they were saying they disagree with, with me or with someone else in the church, the easiest thing to do is just to leave and go to a church down the road that is just slightly different. Rather than resolving and reconciling, we're being discipled from contributing to consuming. Instead of all of life all about Jesus, it's all of life all about us and we fill ourselves with the world's stores and yet it's Never quite enough. Herman Bavink has this incredible quote. He was a a Dutch theologian. The more abundantly the benefits of civilization come streaming our way, the emptier our lives become. With all its wealth and power, it only shows that the human heart in which God has put eternity is so huge that all the world is too small to satisfy it. We were not designed to be consumers but contributors. We're being discipled from rest to exhaustion. The badge of honour in our culture is how you're doing, busy, tired, exhausted. Burnout has become our calling card. We have what philosophers call ontological lightness. It means that when we stop, there's nothing to us because all we do is doing, 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 doing and we just forgot how to be. We can't We can't sit in the silence anymore and an exhausted people cannot steward the things of God. This is killing our church and it's killing us because a group of people who call themselves Christians and yet are filled with doubt, insecurity, individualism, consuming and exhaustion cannot look like Jesus. They don't walk like Jesus, they don't look like Jesus, they don't give like Jesus. This does not work. And so I wonder... As you're here this morning, as you're looking upon that list, how are you doing? Right? If you call yourself a Christian, if you don't call yourself a Christian, that's okay. We love that you're here. We love that you're, you're part of this community and trying to work things out. But if you, if you would call yourself a Christian, take a look at the list and go, what's, what's convicting me? This is not something that uh, I've worked out. This is something that I'm, I'm working out. So just a, a bit of a confession um, so I grew up with several chronic health conditions. Um, so two of which, the main ones are chronic fatigue syndrome and something called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which uh, took me a long time to memorise how to say that. But it's essentially what the yellow wiggle has. And what it left me to do was I was, I was really, really, really sick as a kid. I passed year 11 with a 15% attendance record and probably wouldn't have attended school much more than that from year 8 onwards. Um, so I was, a, I was a really sick kid. And I, I remember when I was 15 years old, I, um, I walked into my specialist office, and this is a specialist that we've been seeing for a while, trying to work out what's going on. Syndrome is sort of doctor speak for like, we don't really know what to do, right? It's just this is a collection of, of diagnoses. We don't really know how to fix this, but let's work it out. So we've been trying a bunch of different things. We've been trying new treatments and... I remember walking into his office and he sat us down and he said, look, we've, we've actually tried all the treatments. There's nothing left for us to do and um, I, I want to tell you this not to discourage you but to, so you can be prepared for what lies ahead. He said, the, the most likely outcome for you is that you won't finish high school and the most likely outcome is that you won't 
go to university and the most likely outcome is that you probably won't have a family because the people that I know with these conditions, they aren't able to do that. It's hard to find a partner when you can't walk from, the front, from your bed to the front door. It's hard to finish high school when you're not there, you're there once every two weeks. It's hard to go to university when you don't finish high school. And to be honest, I, I get it. I get what he was trying to do. Um, I get that he was trying to soften the blow of what the future was about to bring for me, and at the same time, it was devastating. And I, I look at that moment, I think that's been one of the most pivotal moments in my entire life. Because what that provoked in me, rather than discouragement, was this spirit that has been fostered inside of me that has said three important words. I'll show you. I feel like my life has been lived as a, a middle finger to this specialist. And so, from that moment, what have I done? I've achieved and achieved and achieved and achieved and achieved and fought and scratched for every single inch and mile to show that's past high school, past university, happily married, I'll show you. And for lots of us, we go, what a great story, that's excellent. But here's the problem. What has actually taken root in my life over the last 15 years has been a deep-seated insecurity about my place in it. I've spent 15 years running from this insecurity. This is a photo of something called Falls Creek Three Peaks Challenge that I did last year, around the same time, actually. And uh, Falls Creek Challenge is one of the five hardest cycling races in the world. So it starts on the top of Falls Creek in Alpine, Victoria. You go down that, you go up Tawonga Gap, which is eight kilometres of climbing. You go around to Mount Hotham, you go up Mount Hotham, which is 30 kilometres of climbing. Then you go all the way around to the back of Falls, which is another 10 kilometres. And uh, it's a 240 kilometre ride uh, with 4,000 metres of elevation. And it's also the place where I think my insecurity caught up with me. I love cycling, and most of you know that I'll almost try, I can go back one side, Phil. Uh, most of you know that, for me, cycling is such a release. And yet, this is a photo taken at the top of Mount Hotham, at which I would almost consider it the worst moment of my life. Because in the three hours it took for me to climb from the bottom of Mount Hotham to the top, there had been what almost a mental breakdown take place. I was imagining every single important person in my life telling me what a failure I was for three hours. Fifteen years spent running from my insecurity had caught up with me in the middle of this huge event that I trained for six months to the point that uh, my best friend Tom uh, pushed me up the mountain. I, I almost could not move. I was in a world of pain. And that, that wasn't just a moment, that was a breaking point for me. That was a breaking point. So the last 12 months has been me learning and unlearning and grappling with this reality that a central part of my life has been this insecurity that I've run from, that has fueled me, but is actually deeply unhealthy and not at all the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't promise insecurity. He promises security. 
Now, I haven't worked this out. This was a text message I sent to Sarah last Monday afternoon. The first half is us arguing about how much brisket that we'll eat uh, and how much a lion's share is. And the second is me halfway through the day. Can you be praying for me? I'm feeling pretty anxious about Ridley, which is the college I go to, and balancing assessments, classwork and work and family. 24 hours previous, I'm at church worshipping God, being filled with the truth of Jesus, and 24 hours later, I'm sitting in this anxiety based on my performance. I'm still working this out. And so I wonder, I just wonder how this is working for you. Right? We, we, we call ourselves Christian. We say that we're all about Jesus. And how's it going for you? Right? Is, this, is this the kind of life that Jesus talked about? The one that you're living right now? Is this abundant life that Jesus talked about? Is this the streams of everlasting water? Is this the easy yoke that Jesus talked about? Is this the rest that Jesus talked about? Is this, is this the water that will lead to never thirsting? Because I've got to be honest. If this is the fullness of what Jesus talks about, then I'm fairly underwhelmed. I, I love Jesus. I've been following Jesus since I was 13 years old. So, you know, 17 years of being a Christian and following and loving Jesus. And if this is, this is it, then I feel like I've missed something. And I think what most of us do in those moments where we're not experiencing the promises of Jesus is that we just p- keep pushing them forward. And we go, well, you know, I'm not experiencing them now. And that's probably because I'm going to experience them in fullness in heaven. Right? We eternalize them. And there's an element of truth to that. So we, we're not experiencing the promises of God, and so we eternalize the promise. Can we go to the next slide, Phil? Only problem with the fact that we eternalize these promises, we say they're not for now, they're for later, is it's just not the way that Jesus talks. He, he just doesn't talk like that about things. So this is a, a classic Jesus promise from Matthew 11. "'Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest.'" All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. Interesting thing, in Greek, if you took literally the translation is, you must take up my yoke because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourself. You must presently, right now, at this moment, take up my yoke and if you do, you will find rest. Next one. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus is talking about false teachers. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Again, present. Not future, present. Jesus promises abundant life right here, right now. Again, next, 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 uh, next verse. John 4. Whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. The water that Jesus is promising is something that we have right now. If you believe in Jesus, we're meant to be experiencing this. And so I have to ask the question, what's happened? What's happened to us that we're not experiencing these promises that are given to us in the present? Jesus says, you will have rest Jesus says, you will have abundant life. Jesus says, you will have water that will lead to never thirsting again. One of the most famous sayings of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. Eugene Peterson says it like this, though. The truth of Jesus plus the way of Jesus 
leads to the life of Jesus. And I wonder, if we're not experiencing the kind of life that Jesus talks about, do we need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, do we believe the truth about Jesus and are we walking in the way of Jesus? Because churches like ours are at risk of something quite profound. We are a church that loves the truth of Jesus. We proclaim the truth of Jesus. We expound the truth of Jesus. We worship with the truth of Jesus. We love the truth of Jesus. And yet, I think the, the, the path that God is leading us down is a realization that maybe we've been ignoring and neglecting the ways of Jesus. That we can talk about things without actually practicing them and just just eternalize away the fact that we're meant to be experiencing things that we're not. What we've done is sign up to something that originated in the 16th century. Rene Descartes, who you might have heard of before, came up with a famous saying, I think, therefore I am. Actually, sound, uh, think, therefore I am. Uh, right? I think, therefore I am. And what he was getting at is that we are primarily thinking things. That if we understand them in our heads, then we'll just be able to do it. Right? It's called a banking model of education. That if you have the information inside of you, if you can just read and look and gather as much as possible, then you'll be able to take it at, out at the right time and do the right thing because you'll know the truth. And the problem is that it just doesn't work. Right? It's just silly. I know that if I eat cake for breakfast, I will feel sick for most of the day. But knowledge doesn't mean that I will not eat the cake for breakfast. Do we have any people here with lactose intolerance? All right, excellent. Right, I've got lots of allergies, so I've grown up in the allergy world. Let me tell you, people with lactose intolerance, they're the bad boys of the allergy world. Because here's the thing, so I'm allergic to egg, you know what I do? I stay clear of egg. I know, I, I'm just going to stay clear of egg because that's going to probably kill me or make me real sick. Lactose intolerance people, they don't, they don't care about that, right? Cheese, give it to me. I'm going to have as much as possible, even if it makes me feel sick, even if it makes me feel terrible, it doesn't matter. Knowing that eating cheese is going to make you feel sick doesn't lead to action. Education isn't everything. And this goes everywhere. One of the most given wishes for people in our society is to be fitter, right? We want to be fitter, we want to look nice, we want to lose weight, and yet we all know the recipe for that. Exercise more, eat less. Knowledge doesn't lead to action. How many gym memberships have we bought thinking that we're going to become buff only to ignore them for the remaining 11 months of the year once January has passed? And if we're not careful, we can do this with theology and the Bible. We can store up knowledge and truth without ever intending to apply it to our own lives. Right? And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Here's some Bible trivia. How many times in the New Testament does a Christian refer to another Christian as a Christian? Have, have a guess. Zero. No. Incorrect. How many? It's more than zero. Phil. Five. No. Fifteen. We're getting further away. Let me tell you, it is Benji. How many? Seven. No. Further away. Once. The word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament, and it only appears once said by a Christian in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but, give, but glorify God in having that name. In fact, the only other times that the word Christian appears in Acts 11 and Acts 26, we don't have those on screen, it's actually negative, and it's said by people outside of the faith, 
It's about people outside of following Jesus. And it's sort of like this, this insult. Say, oh, those, they're those little Jesus people. They're those little Christians. So what did the church call themselves? What was the common language they used? Well, they actually used this phrase called belonging to or followers of the way. If you're a Christian in the first century, if you're part of the early church, you are a follower of the way. You belong to the way. And we see this in Acts again and again. Can we get the first verse up? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found any men or women who belonged to the way he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Can we go to Acts 19? When some became hardened, would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples. That's Paul conducting discussions. This is Acts 22. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail. And then in Acts 24, I confess this to you, I worship my Father's God according to the way. Then the next, next one in Acts 24. Since Felix, Felix was accurately informed about the way... He adjourned the hearing. So again and again and again, the early church referred to them as following the way or belonging to the way. And what are they getting at? Well, they're definitely pointing to the fact that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But they're also pointing to the fact that for the early church, for the first century Christians, being a Christian, being a disciple, being a daily apprentice of Jesus was an all-in thing. It wasn't just I'm with him, it's I'm there all the time with Jesus. I am following the way. I'm all in. I'm an apprentice. So let me bring it back to us. The Bible says this in James chapter 2. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Jeremiah is the next, next slide. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What does Jesus say? This is the greatest commandment. If you follow this, you've got the Old Testament worked out. Right? We condense all those big books down to one the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength. We've got it worked out. And yet in James chapter 2, it says that the demons believe this. The demons know the truth of Jesus. But they don't follow Jesus. I'm going to say something hard. And I want you to receive it in the spirit of love and the acknowledgement that I'm working this out as well. If as a church... We are committed to knowing the truth of Jesus, but are not equally committed to find the way of Jesus. We have more in common with demons than we do Jesus. If we are committed to knowing the truth of Jesus, but are not committed to find the way of Jesus, we have more in common with demons than we do Jesus. The difference between disciples and demons is not knowing the truth. The demons believe. The demons have better theology than I do, but it never leads to conviction. It never leads to heart change. It never leads to transformation. It never leads to worship. The demons know this truth, and they hate it. Right? They hate the fact that the Lord is one. They hate the fact that Jesus is on the throne. They hate the fact that we should worship Him. They hate the fact that He's the Christ and the Savior, but they know it. What differentiates a demon and a disciple 
is heart change. It's following in the footsteps of Jesus. And so I feel like our church is at a fork in the road. We love the truth of Jesus here. And do not let me say that studying theology and knowing things is bad. Right? I've dedicated most of my life to knowing Jesus in this way. But we need to follow him with both mind and actions, head, heart, and hands. And so that's the invitation this morning, is that when Jesus invites us to follow him, like the same invitation he gives in the book of Mark, come and follow me, come and be my disciple, what he's inviting us to is follow me, spirit and truth. Follow me in knowledge and action. Follow me in the truth of Jesus and the way of Jesus. And I think this is vital. Dallas Willard has this quote that I've just been just, just trying to rack my head around. He says this, the greatest issue facing the world today. Now just think about all of the issues that are facing the world. Everything that is going on, from racial injustice to governments falling apart to economic just, just being blown up, the coronavirus, everything that you can think of, the greatest issue, greater than any of those, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture identify as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. The greatest issue is whether those who call themselves Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners. Here's an uncomfortable truth. You can sit in church all of your life and never follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And I, I think that's why we have so many dissatisfied Christians. Because we think that I've come to Sunday, I've heard the sermon, that's all great, but I'm actually not doing anything the rest of the week. I'm not, I'm not following in the ways of Jesus. And let me tell you, that would be dissatisfying. It is dissatisfying. But Jesus has something better. That's where I want to land today. The next four or five weeks, we're going to look at what are the ways of Jesus. What would it look like for us to follow Jesus in this way? What would it look like to be a daily apprentice of Jesus? But I don't want to wrap this up with a neat little bow for us. I'm not going to massage out the, the difficult spots for us because I think this is something that we as a church need to sit in and hear, that we are a church who loves the truth of Jesus but have ignored and neglected the ways of Jesus. So here's what I want us to do this week. I want you to participate in one of the ways of Jesus, which is fasting and praying. Here's my invitation. Set aside 12 hours to abstain from food or drink, trust me, your body will cope. It will be okay. All of us could deal with 12 hours of no food. And set it aside to pray and talk with God about these different issues. We've got some questions that you could talk with God. When you're fasting and praying, ask Him, what would it look like for me to be an apprentice of Jesus? What would it look like for us to walk in the ways of Jesus? God, show me the ways that I'm being discipled away from Jesus and show me how to walk in your ways. I honestly believe that if we as a church fasted and prayed, if we set aside time to inquire, to sit with God and ask Him these questions, we would have incredible revelations of where God is leading us. And so that's where I want to end it. Task this week, fast, pray, sit with God and ask Him these questions. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band up after that. But, but here's something. 
Don't miss out on this moment. If you feel like God is convicting you, if you feel like God is speaking to you, like there's going to be people down the front to pray with you, don't miss that. Don't let that moment slip by. That is God speaking to you, saying, act. Follow me. Come. Be my disciple. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. God, we need you. We desperately need you. God, it is too easy for us to do the, do the, the simple thing and just know lots about you without ever worshipping you. God, so break us of our habits that lead us away from you. Break us of our apprenticeship to the world. Break us and reveal to us all the ways that we are being apprenticed and discipled away from Jesus. God, give us eyes to see what could be if we sat at his feet every day. God, I pray this week that you would give us the strength and conviction not to let this moment slide by, but instead that we would set aside time to be with you, to fast and pray and depend upon God, I cannot wait to see what you have in store for our church, but I know this. If we just know your truth and do not follow your ways, we will miss it. So don't let us miss it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.